Lord, as we now encroach in this book, the Song of Songs, which we see as a picture of the Holy of Holies, of perfect communion and oneness with you, let us not just look, but let us enter, because Christ, our high priest, has prepared the way. So draw us in now. Amen. Fire can be life. Fire can also be death. In, an, in a hearth, fire is beneficial. It brings warmth. You can cook your food. In fact, many homes in the old days were valued by how many hearths you have in the house. Today, it's an optional thing. <laughs> but hearths were important. Fire brings life. It brings light. It brings warmth. But fire can also, if it's outside of the hearth, it can bring devastation to the very home that finds life from it. So fire is life. Fire is death. The defining difference of how fire plays depends upon the nature of that which receives the fire. A hearth is safe because it's stone. Your fire or your house is not safe because it is wood and other flammable objects. (laughs) Fire depends upon what it attaches it to. Paper. I I debated doing this, bringing a piece of paper, and but there's a smoke detector right above me, so I opted not to. But you imagine if I brought paper to this candle. It doesn't take much to get paper to go up into ashes. But if I was to take iron and put it in the furnace, iron does not get consumed or destroyed. In fact, the opposite. Iron begins to take on the nature of fire. Did you know that? As iron begins to glow, and then it becomes moldable. The nature depends upon what happens when it's put into fire. Question for us is what is your nature and how do you handle fire? Now tonight, the Song of Songs ends with a climax. That love is fire. That's what it's going to say. And this is considered the climax by nearly every commentator The consummation of the marriage was really exciting, but that was nothing compared to the end of the Song of Songs. So, uh, love is fire, is what we're going to see. Now, if you have ever loved, you know that love is fire. It can burn, or it can set you ablaze. It depends upon the nature of the relationship. So, Song of Songs, chapter 8, let's read it through. And we will go into it. Chapter 8. The bride speaks. Oh, that you, the king, were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. I know that's very odd, right? To be yearning that your lover was a brother, but we'll get into it. Who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head and his right embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you do not stir up love, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree, I awakened you. Now, by the way, the ESV has the uh, bride still speaking. I think that the king is speaking here, but that was not conclusive in my studies. 
So I think he's saying, um, uh, uh, sorry, um, uh, at the under the apple tree, this is now the king. The king says, under the apple tree, I awakened you, the bride. There your mother was in labor with you. Because remember, she just mentioned her mother. There she who bore you was in labor. Now, verse 6, who's speaking, the bride? Or is this the narrator, Solomon, now interjecting at the conclusion, here is my point in this book. And this, by the way, verse 6, is the climax. So we don't know who's speaking. It might be Solomon, um, the author Solomon, or it might be the bride. But it says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. You can't buy love, you fool. That's what that says. Now, verse 8, we come to everyone's having their concluding comments. The others speak. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts, because she's young. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? So when she becomes a woman, what shall we do until then? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. Look, if she's going to stay chaste, good. If she's not, we're going to build a, we're going to make sure she does not get out. (laughs) That's what that's saying. Now she, the bride says, I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. I kept my, I I was a virgin until my breasts were developed. Um, Then I was in his eyes, the king's eyes, as one who finds peace. She brought peace to the relationship because she was fully his. Verse 11, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring forth its fruit, a thousand pieces of silver. So you give a vineyard to someone. If you're rich, you own all this land. You can work my vineyard. I want a thousand dollars from it. And then I pay you 200 for your labor. That's the idea. So a thousand pieces of silver, verse 12. My vineyard, my very own is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit, 200. She's giving herself over is what she's saying. I kept myself pure. Now this vineyard is yours, Solomon. I surrender it to you. The king now says in verse 13, O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me in. The bride, make haste, my love. Be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. So that's how it ends. 8-6, though, is our climax. What a beautiful, powerful passage. And what's interesting about 8 verse 6 is that this is, shocked me, the very first mention of God in this whole book, in this whole song. God was not mentioned by name until... It's flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. There it is. Now, that's surprising because while this is the first mention of God, it is definitely not the first revelation of God. God has been revealed from the very first verses of this book because we've seen this relationship between God and his people through the king and the bride. 
And so it's, it's striking in a way to be like, oh, God made an appearance. And because the whole time he's working behind the scenes of this whole story, this whole song. What we read in 8 verse 6 is that love is strong as death. Love is fierce as the grave. How strong is death? It overcomes every human being. How fierce is the grave? The same. It's a synonym, right? It's, it's, it's Hebrew poetry to repeat in a different way. Um, love is flashes of fire. It goes out and it can burn or it can heal. Uh, it is also, love is the very flame of God. God is emanating. Love is the idea. As fire emanates flames. Love is unquenchable. Many waters cannot quench love. Waters usually refer to death in scripture. Death can't quench love. Um, neither can it be purchased like the fool who wants to sell his house to attain love. That's what love is. 1 Corinthians 13 gives us one list of love in the New Testament. Love is patient, love is kind, so forth. This is Song of Songs definition of love. And it's powerful. And when I came upon it, I'll be honest, I remember this because of there's a song that sings something of these lines. Um, but I was like, oh, I totally forgot that's in the Bible. I know, even me, I totally forgot that was in the Bible. This is a tremendous passage. Um, what this is saying is that this kind of love that we're reading right here that conquers death and is unquenchable, this kind of love is what we've been seeing through the book of the Song of Songs. We've been singing it through the song. And this kind of love, it tells us by saying it's the very flame of the Lord, this kind of love is sourced in God. That's where it comes from. It is not generated by getting the right type of people together. Oh, they're just not a good fit for me. No, this kind of love comes from God. And this kind of love is a participation in his nature. Because if this love comes from God, it's part of his nature. And when we participate in this kind of love with a spouse, we're actually participating in God's nature. And when Christ gives himself to us and we experience him in this kind of love, we are being made one with God and we are participating in his nature. This is what we mean by it is the very flame of the Lord. This is the kind of love that the Song of Songs is about. So what have we seen in this song as we come to the conclusion of this song? What have we seen? We've seen um, that this song is, yep, sexual, very sexual. Um, mostly in, you know, the wedding night, they're standing naked and talking about each other's private parts and saying, let's do this. And all these metaphors, climbing up the palm tree and grabbing the clusters. And like, it's sexual, no doubt. So much so that there are commentaries out there that I found... A little bit uh, over-celebratory of some of the imagery. It's almost like there's some Bible scholars out there going, Finally, there's a book we can talk about sex in. And they just drag, they just go crazy. Um, it's definitely sexual. But this song is also spiritual. Now, a lot of people will say to read the Song of Songs as a spiritual book about the king and the bride, Christ and us, is to say, ooh, sex is gross, or ooh, sex is sinful, or ooh, sex is dirty, so we're going to cop out and look at this as a metaphor. I'm so sorry, but that is really dumb. We are taking the sex seriously, but we're saying that this is nothing more than a window, not nothing more, but the sex is a window into something deeper. The song is spiritual and sexual because, brothers and sisters, 
sex is sacramental. Sacramental is, you know, fancy church language for basically saying that it's a visible and physical participation in the invisible and ineffable. Okay, our relationship with God is, for the most part, invisible. You you don't see God, you can't grasp God, but sex is visible and it's tangible. And this becomes, sex becomes a reality for us of the mystery of what is really important in the world. God gives us these windows, right? We talk about the body and blood of Christ and that we commune with him. He's given us cup and bread so that we can physically, tangibly understand and relate what he's given to us and that we ingest Christ, that we become one with him. These are called sacraments. It's these windows, if you will. These windows through which we look into the reality of God. That's what sex is. It's a window through which we see the reality of God and humanity. Notice though you look through windows. Things get really messed up when you keep looking at the window. Windows lose their purpose. And our culture is at that place where sex is not a sacrament. Sex is a religion. And so what we do is we look at the window. And we obsess with the window. But God wanted this to lead us into some greater depth and understanding. So we've looked at it as both. Um, we've seen the narrative of this story. Oh, by the way, it's probably Solomon writing one of his thousands of songs. His last one, um, this is just my, my, my suggestion. Uh, he's at the end of his life. He's totally made a mess of himself, especially in the love and sex department. And um, he's looking back on all that and writing his final song, the Song of Songs, and saying, I now understand that what I thought I yearned for, that kind of union, I actually was yearning for the union between me and God. The one who built the temple and saw the construction of the Holy of Holies understood that that's what he always yearned for. So he calls his song... He names it after the Holy of Holies. It's the Song of Songs. And so this is what he's always yearned for. So we have this narrative. The king and the bride are in this courtship in chapters 1 and 2. Then in chapters 3 through 4, we see the marriage, the wedding night, and we see the consummation and the beautiful description of the king and the bride entering into the Garden of Eden and the Promised Land. Those are the imageries used for their wedding night. Um, then we see in chapters 5, 6, and 7, this was last week, we saw the maturation of their love. That sometimes there's these like withdrawals and then these seeking after. And, and every time that we sin and repent and turn back to our king, we are deepening and maturing in our love. Sin does not have to be the end. It does not have to be devastating. It is an opportunity to turn to him in humility and recognize once again why we need our king. And now tonight, the book, the song, I should say, the song ends with anticipation and yearning for more. This is how it closes. Notice in verse 14, it closes with, uh, come and leap up on the mountains, young stag. Um, but we don't see anything happen. It's this invitation. And then it's like the king's like ready to go. And like mid-action says, to be continued. You're like, oh no, we don't get to see the good stuff. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's not quite like that. But um, <laughs> um, it also begins with yearning. It begins with yearning. She says in verse 1, Oh, that you were like a brother to me. Oh, I want so badly that you would have been at my mother's breast too with me. 
Because then I could kiss you in public, she says. This is yearning from beginning to end of this chapter. There is this, we haven't had enough yet. Let's keep going further up and further in on those mountains. And that's how the song ends. Because brothers and sisters, this is how we should be. We should be in a growing love with the king. You, you, if you think that you've kind of got Christianity down, like I've, I've discovered all there is to discover, you don't understand the, the meaning of infinite and eternal. That, that's what God is. You will continually find infinite and eternal joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. In your presence is fullness of joy. That's Psalm 16. And those are saying there's infinite exploration in the King of Kings because he's eternal and infinite. There's continually, there's continual longing that we will never grow old of if you will continue to grow old with Christ. So she wishes that he was his brother. I know you want that cleared up. So basically, um, back then, public displays of affection was frowned upon. So you don't hold your wife's hand as you're walking through the farmer's market in Jerusalem. That, no, you don't do that. You guys keep your distance. You definitely don't kiss or anything like that. So um, what she's yearning for is that he was her brother so that she could do that. See, siblings were allowed to kiss. And of course, this was a kissy-kissy culture. Kissing was a greeting, okay? So siblings would kiss. That's not weird to them. Um, but what her, her whole point is siblings could show affection toward one another in public. She wants this kind of intimacy where it doesn't matter if we're in private or public. We are one. And sadly, some Christians would prefer to keep some things in the bedroom with God and other things were different face in public. But the maturing Christian who's yearning for more and wanting the song to never end is saying, inside or outside, I yearn for the same union with Christ. I'm, a, I'm an unashamed, unabashed follower and lover of Christ. Um, but the other really cool thing here is that Christ, it's one of those hidden gems in the New Testament that once you see it, you're like, duh. But Christ is our older brother. We forget this because we, we often pray to our Father in heaven. So we constantly think of we are sons and daughters of God. And that's true. But Christ is also the Son of God. And Christ came and became us. And he's therefore our older brother. Now, you can see that logically, yes. But that's scriptural as well. For example, Romans chapter 8, verse 16. It says this. That the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we're heirs of his inheritance. We're heirs. Um, but then it says, uh, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What does that mean, fellow heirs with Christ? Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Well, what would happen is the Father would give the inheritance to the firstborn. But to be called a fellow heir means that we are attached to the older son. So much so that we are receiving the inheritance with him. We are brothers and sisters of Christ. He's just being the older brother. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11 makes this very clear. It says, for he, this is God, for God who sanctifies, that means makes holy, for God who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. The one who does the sanctifying, the one who's sanctified, it's all coming from God. All have the same source. This is why Christ is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, 
Now he quotes Psalm 22, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Hebrews says that Christ calls us brothers and sisters. So here in the song, as the bride's yearning to call the king brother, we on this side of it get to say, he is our brother. And there's no limits to our union and communion with him now. There's no, it has to be in this place, but not in that place. We are in full union with him wherever we go. That's awesome. Then the other part of yearning, the last verse in verse 14 Um, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or young stag on the mountains of spices. When I read that, instantly popped in my head, the Song of Songs closes the way the Bible closes. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17 and 20. Last chapter of the Bible. The spirit and the bride of all terms for the church, the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, come. And he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Three comes, and he says, I'm coming soon. And then there's that term that we know, we use at the end of our service, the term Maranatha. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, Maranatha. Maranatha is a, it's, it's not, it's an untranslated word. That's the original word, and it means, come Lord Jesus. She here is saying to the king, make haste, come to me. And this is what the church is saying as the song is suspended. And the song will resume in Revelation 19 at the marriage supper of the Lamb when it says that all the hosts of heaven sing hallelujah and the wedding supper of the Lamb has come. Our song is suspended right now and we're waiting to celebrate with the whole host of heaven. Come Lord Jesus, come Maranatha. This is a book that closes. It's a song that closes with yearning for more. And so here we are. But this whole idea of love being the very flame of God in the middle of this, in verse 6. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Grave also is literally in the Hebrew, it's Sheol. Or in the Greek, it's Hades. Those are the places of the dead. That's why it's called the grave. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It flashes Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. To the Christian, sex is worship. We already talked about how sex is a sacrament. It's worship. It is our participation in love that is strong as death, fierce as the grave. And it's worship because if our marital love and sex is done in the eyes of God, we are participating in the flame of God. Any participation in who God is, is worship. This is, this, this is, this, this is, this sounds a little shocking. But here's, here's why. I think we lose this idea because in the world, sex is not worship. Sex is worshipped. And so we feel weird thinking that sex is worship because we feel like I can't idolize sex. That's not what we're saying. Sex is given to God as this, if you will, this like religious service. It's a service. It's an act of worship as husband and wife are 
um, bringing a physical representation of what Christ and the church are. And here's the thing. Um, biblical sex brings forth children. Christ and the church produce children and fruit. This is all families are meant to show us this mystery that we cannot see with our eyes. So therefore, to the Christian, we need to see sex as worship, which is why um, we take sex seriously. It can be... I think a lot of people have been off-put by Christian teachings of sex because we take it seriously, but what they what we've failed to communicate is why we take sex seriously. All they know is we tell them, "Do not have sex before marriage and do not you're not married. you 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 got to you got to do it all right." And none of that little Joey and little Bob and like we 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 just hear like these rules about it. It's like Christians are so serious and they're so scared of sex and it's like it's so sinful. So sometimes we can actually grow up in the church thinking of sex as something like it's very embarrassing. And something we shouldn't ever, like, no, we just pretend no one does that. Kids just magically appear. And, um, <laughs> we forget that sex is actually worship because what we've, we've grown up with this fear. We've grown up being told about the seriousness of sex. So we think that sex is serious because it's sinful. Because we're only told about what sex is like outside of marriage. It's bad. It's horrendous. It's sinful. You get STDs and all these things. Um, but we forget to teach what it is like in marriage. We don't take sex seriously because it's sinful. We take it seriously because it's spiritual, because it's sacred, because it's sacramental. That's why we take it seriously. It is worship. Going just back to the idea of it being the window. We're looking through this to see God, but we're not looking at the window. And if we're looking at sex, that's called pornography. And that is definitely not taking sex seriously. That's taking sex lightly yeah sex is serious because it is actual worship when husband and wife engage they are worshiping god when when people who are not husband and wife engage they are worshiping themselves and that's the difference now um i've been thinking a lot about weddings lately because i i read a couple random things about weddings in the ancient church i was like whoa we're doing things so weird today. And uh, I've, I've run weddings myself. And I've been, you know, we've all been to weddings. It, it really gets you thinking when you start to, like, put together ceremonies for people. Um, what I've concluded is that what we do today is the wedding is basically a chance uh, for everybody to celebrate the expression of this unique couple. It's them expressing their own love for one another. You see this in the fact that what's very trendy and popular today is the couples exchanging their own vows, as if their word was better than another's vow, right? Um, and it's all cute and mushy, and it's basically like expressing how they love one another. And it's, it's cute. I'm not against that, but please don't replace church vows with your own vow. Like, that's not a good thing. But, like, what we see is in weddings today is people will often be living together already. Then the marriage is just this, like, climatic, like, let's get everybody to celebrate us. So we've got our theme, and we're decorating it like this. And then Bridezilla comes out because there's so much stress on her to make this perfectly represent who I am. It's got to be who I am. So what we've done is we've moved weddings outside of churches because churches don't express who I am. We want, I'm a beach person, so we get married on the beach, or I'm a destination wedding person, so we do all these things. Now, I didn't get married in a church, so I understand, like, and a lot of us didn't, so I understand, like, I'm saying things like, oops, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I would do it differently now that I've reflected on life. Um, uh, not to say that it's necessarily wrong. I think we just gotta understand why are we choosing what we do in our weddings. 
Is it is and when we're talking to our kids, like, is this so that we're expressing my love for this person, this person's love for me? Well, remember though, love is not sourced in us. It's not sourced in this compatibility in our expression for one another. It's sourced in God. And what 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 weddings used to be was the church's sanction on two people to have sex because they can now do this in a worshipful manner. It wasn't just, oh, now you're allowed to because you weren't allowed to. It's now when you do, it is worship because it's stemming from what Christ has given to the church. How far we've come. Weddings are just like this, like, yeah, cool, yay for you guys. And um, priests can be people who are um, priests. I mean, like, I'm going to step on Frank's toes here a little bit. Like, Frank, Frank can do weddings because he filled out paperwork with the government, right? Like, that's really cool. I, I would I would have no doubt Frank does great weddings. He's a great person to marry people. But even consider the option of that. Like, there was a time when, but Frank doesn't represent the church, right? It's an interesting thought. No, he does represent Christ, though, as a Christian. So I'm cool with that. Anyways, um, I'm kind of riffing here, so I'm way off my notes. I don't even know where I am. But... Um, Weddings, see, we're, 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 we've lost the concept of what sex is. Um, it is to be celebrated. It is worship. Um, but this is why we need marriage and why it's a beautiful thing in the Song of Songs. Uh, sex belongs in marriage, right? It belongs in marriage. Not two people who, but we're giving our hearts to each other forever. We did a ceremony in the woods, just the two of us and someone else. Uh, that's celebrating you and your little thing together. But what you have together is not your little thing together. You're participating in the very flame of God and you are entering into his nature in something he's given as an act of worship. You're not doing your little thing together. That's not how this works. We really need to rethink the sexual revolution stirred the church into a frenzy. We panicked. And now we talk like the world, just put Christ in it. We got to rethink sex from a completely unique standpoint from the beginning to where we are now. I'm, I'm, frankly, if you guys have heard this enough from me in the past, and I'm saying it now, but you know, or you know by now, I'm frankly tired of the church reacting to culture. We were not called to react to culture. We were called to lead as Christ leads us. Culture can follow or be left behind condemned. condemned thank you damned would not have been a bad word in that case it's contextual but yeah thank you no <laughs> we all knew what I, we all knew it was supposed to go in that line so um here's what matthew west he wrote by the way a wonderful book matthew west wrote a book called the theology of the body and it's really interesting um, because nobody ever talks about the theology of the body that's not in your systematic theology books <laughs> but he writes this wonderful book um uh And he says this, the love that is, he's quoting Song of Songs here, the love that is strong as death is called marriage. That's the only place you find love strong as death is in marriage. If it's not in marriage and if it's not underneath God, it is just people expressing their love, not the flame of God. And their love is not strong as death. Their love is only as strong as their feelings allow it to be, which is why we change partners and we divorce and so forth. The love that is as strong as death is called marriage. But here's what I say, one step further. The love that is stronger than death is called Christ. Because Christ, his love not only went up to death, it went into death. 
See, we can only make vows that say until death do us part. But Christ goes into death with us. Christ's love not only matched death, but it surpassed death. His love took him down to where the dead go to free us from the tyranny of death, to take and to take the, to plunder Satan from his goods, to say to the devil, you have no authority over my people because I have squashed death. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by his death. And upon those in the tombs bestowing life. His love is stronger than death. But here's what we need to understand then. Is if this love is this strong, we need to be careful. Because if we're going to flirt with death, the love will overcome you. But if we're going to choose life, the love will make sure that we conquer death as well. And this is where the metaphor of fire comes in. Love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It flashes forth. This is such a tongue twister. It flashes our flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. This love that is stronger than death. This is the fire of God. God is often described as fire in the Bible. Do you know why? Think of like the burning bush. Mount Sinai, how does he descend? Fire. Pentecost, how does he descend? Fire. Why is God described as fire? Well, interesting to note, while water is in the Genesis narration of creation, Genesis 1, waters are there, which is always a symbol of death. Um, Fire is not mentioned in the creation narrative. It's as if fire comes from an eternal source. It has no beginning. And this is why God chooses fire to represent himself. But, as you guys now know, fire can illuminate and transform and purify and warm, or it can burn and destroy and consume. Our God is both. First, he's a communing fire. He's a communing fire. He wants to be with his people. The burning bush, we see God appear in the bush as fire. But what happens to the bush? It draws Moses' attention because Moses says, the bush is not consumed. It's not burned up. What is going on? Two things that should not go together. Paper, candle should not go together. But here, fire, bush shouldn't go together. They go together. Nature of God, pure, perfect, uncreated, infinite. Nature of humanity, sinful, created, finite, doomed to die. These two things should not go together. But in Christ, the fire and the bush come together. And not one is destroyed by the other. They co-mingle. This is sex in a way, right? Sex is a sacrament to this reality. They become one. God is a communing fire. We commune with him. He, he comes as fire and we get warmed. We get illumined. We get to become fire ourselves. The nature of God in us. Think of Mount Sinai. Moses' face glows from the fire. He comes down and his face is emanating the fire. The transfiguration. Jesus shines brighter than the sun. It's meant to mirror Mount Sinai, only one better. Um, because it's Christ. He is radiating light, Matthew says, brighter than the sun. This is 
the fire of God, the light of God. The road to Emmaus, the two disciples are talking with Jesus, whom they don't know is Jesus because he's risen. They don't recognize him. And then when he eats, when he breaks bread among them, he disappears and they recognize him. And then what do they say? Did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke with us? This is our communing fire. Pentecost, the disciples are filled with the Spirit of God and they're empowered to take the message and love of God to the world because fire descends. This is our communing fire, bringing us to one with our Creator. But God is also a consuming fire, one that destroys, one that dis- when that one that you, you, you don't want to get in the way of the consuming fire. Deuteronomy 4 verse 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Jealous, by the way, and this is also in our text, jealousy is fierce as the grave. We think of jealousy as evil and sinful because we forget that jealousy and envy are different things. Envy is a sin. Envy is wishing ill upon someone else because they have something that you want. Jealousy is protectiveness, it's possessiveness. It's saying, I will take no competition for you because you're mine. God is jealous because he does not want to compete with other gods. That's what it means by jealous. So he says, your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So if you're going to go dabble with idols, that fire will consume you. Psalm 21, 8 and 9. Your right, uh, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. Who? Those that hate the Lord. Isaiah 66, 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire. And his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. What is going to judge the world? Fire. You want to know what a soul's worth? Put God's fire to them. Are they illumined or are they consumed? Luke 3, verse 16, John the Baptist answers them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff, the bad stuff you don't eat, the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Second Thessalonians 1 verse 7. When the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. A love. I didn't read all of them. I had to cut them down because I'm like, this would take too long. A love that's stronger than death is a love that devours death. So if we are going to choose the ways of death, you will be consumed by the fire that devours death. That's what's being described here. And this is why we need to understand that jealousy is fierce as the grave. The flame, the very flame of the Lord wants to commune with his creatures, but some of them will choose instead because of their nature to be consumed. Because he's jealous 
and they have chosen other gods and idols to love. Jealousy. That leads us, understanding is jealousy leads us to purity. That's verses 8 to 12, the last kind of part of the song. We read it, I explained it a little bit. It's talking about virginity, keeping their daughter back so she's pure for her husband. And then the bride says, I was kept pure for you, my king. This is purity. And by the way, in Revelation uh, chapter 14, it talks about those who did not defile their garments and they were kept virgins for the lamb. It's, it's talking about the church that keeps itself pure, virgins, not dabbling with other gods, recognizing that God's a jealous God. He will not put up with other lovers. Um, yeah, the bride kept herself for the king, so she gives herself to the king. In verse 12, she basically says, Solomon, you can have all of me. So what jealousy does is it requires purity. And so we must, if this is what we need to understand, if God's a jealous God, we need to understand that you're safe with his fire so long as we remove the flammable from us. The things that are flammable in us and in our lives if, if we remove what is flammable, then we will not be consumable. And this is what the Bible portrays as our sins and our old nature, is that these are flammable. What God does is God purifies these things. His fire burns sin. That's what it feeds upon is evil, darkness, death, sin. And if we're going to wear that, be careful. But if we're going to let God instead burn that away so that we can be pure, but I'll be naked. Song of Songs is all about getting naked before the king. That's the only way to commune with him. The clothes must come off if we're to enter into communion. And so we must take off what is flammable if we don't want to be consumable. If I'm going to be barbecuing, I would be foolish to be wearing a shirt that's got dangling like little strings as I'm working over the open flame. I'm asking for it. Or if my hair was even longer, I just let it kind of like, let's let it fall down into the, oh, hey, I'm, I'm cooking burgers. You're cooking your head. That's <laughs> on fire. Like, there's things you would do it. You tie that back. You, you understand that if you're by fire that can consume, you remove the flammable so you don't become consumable. One of the most important properties of fire that we must remember, and this is perhaps the heart of it, is that fire is a purifier. You guys perhaps know 1 Corinthians 3 verse 13. This is how judgment works. God's not like going to sit there and say, oh, Brett, well, I saw that you did this and you did that and the book's way out. Yeah, sorry, Brett. Uh, this is how judgment works. The fire descends and on his people we become like iron and we take on the nature of the fire. And if we're not as people, we are like paper and straw, chaff, we're consumed. First Corinthians 3 verse 13, each one's work will become manifest for the day, which all the other rest of the Bible says is coming like fire. The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. God's love will burn up our sin. That's the good news. He comes as fire and we say, yes, burn up the sins, the thorns of my soul. Burn them up. And then we're made pure. Christ, 
Burn up our sins as we receive communion. Burn up the sins of my soul. And he will do that. He cleanses us every time. But, woe to the person who makes sin a part of his nature. Because then your nature is burned up. That is what hell is. So when we stand before the very flame of the Lord, his fiery love, is the love going to scorch you and terrify you because you hated him? Because you refused to obey his commands? Because you refused to kiss his son? To see him as your brother? Or is it going to radiate us with the glory of God himself? Because we have always allowed his fire in us, communing with us. I want to close with Peter of Damascus. He was an 8th century Christian. And he had this, he really sums it up really well. Peter says, We all receive God's blessing equally. But some of us receiving God's fire, that is by his word, become soft like beeswax. While others, like clay, become hard as stone. It's the same fire. God's not mad at this person and in love with this person. It's the same love emanating. Some people receive the love and become like wax. Some receive it and become like clay, hardened. If we do not want him, he does not force any of us. But like the sun, he sends the S-U-N, like that sun, he sends his rays and illuminates the whole world. And he who wants to see him, sees him. Whereas the one who does not want to see him is not forced by him. Love is fire. God is love. God is fire. When his fire comes, what? Remember, the fire either burns or brings life depending on the nature of that which the fire descends. What is our nature? Are we communing with God? Are we like the bride giving ourselves to the king in the song? Are we continually refusing, hardening in our hearts, putting ourselves first, serving other gods? The fire will determine. The fire will demonstrate who we really are. Lord, have mercy. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner.